are listening to The Addiction Files, where we discuss evidence-based treatment, clinical pearls and resources, while striving to destigmatize the treatment of addiction in our medical culture and save lives. We are the addiction doctors, Dr. Darlene Peterson and Paula Cook. Quick addiction update before we get into our regular program today. Health and Human Services released this week a new buprenorphine practice update to expand access to treatment for opioid use disorder. This is really exciting, Paula. As most of you are probably aware, with the COVID pandemic, we have seen more than 90,000 drug overdose deaths that are predicted to have occurred in the United States in the 12 months ending in September 2020. This is the highest number of overdose deaths ever recorded in a 12-month period. And that was just ending in September. We're predicting that this will probably be over 100,000 by the by the end of this year. What they have done is they have added in an exemption to the buprenorphine waiver. And this allows a physician, a physician assistant, nurse practitioner, or clinical nurse specialist to treat up to 30 patients with buprenorphine without having to complete the traditional eight hours for a physician or 24 hours required for a nurse practitioner or physician assistant. Practitioner who does not wish to practice under the exemption and its attendant 30 patient limit, they may then go ahead and seek a waiver per the established protocols hopefully get to more access for patients and treatment. Yeah, it is. And I think, you know, they've looked at some of the barriers for people accessing evidence-based treatment for opioid use disorder. And this is a response to that. Uh, There's only about 7% of people with opioid use disorder who access medications for opioid use disorder, specifically buprenorphine, naltrexone, or methadone. And being that buprenorphine is an office-based pharmacological method that can be started immediately as opposed to naltrexone, which you have to wait a period of time and and is therefore a little bit more difficult to um, access for the patient. This really does hopefully expand the access that people have, but it puts it onto the provider. So providers saying, well, I don't have time to do this training, which is the traditional route to be able to prescribe buprenorphine, which is a schedule three controlled substance. This now allows providers to just go ahead and prescribe buprenorphine just like they do any other medication. So as providers, we prescribe medications all the time that we may not be very familiar with. And we use our data bases like Hippocrates or UpToDate or other online services that give us dosing information, guidelines, pharmacological interactions. And we go ahead and use those medications because they're indicated for the patient and they may be life-saving. And I think this is a great move on behalf of Department of Health and Human Services to make this medication available without requiring additional training and also acknowledging that this is a life-saving medication and waiting to prescribe this medication may result in a fatal overdose death in a large percentage of people uh, while people are waiting to access treatment. So we're hoping that the number of providers in this country increases from a measly 7% to a much more reasonable number. And we encourage providers who are currently uh, pre-contemplative or contemplative about prescribing buprenorphine to just start using this medication, use your 
your mentors um, in the community who do prescribe it if you're feeling anxious about it, or use other resources online like the SAMHSA Tip 63, or you can have um, access to the technical assistance from the Opioid Response Network grant if you need more help in prescribing buprenorphine to patients with opioid use disorder. So we can start tackling this problem before we lose more people to fatal overdose and some of the negative consequences that don't include death, but include skin and soft tissue infections, other serious infections, transmission of HIV, hep C, and just uh, destruction of quality of life for people who suffer from this really, really terrible um, condition. Thank you, Paula. I think you've summarized that really well. Again, if this is a medication you've never prescribed and don't have any training on, there are so many free resources out there where you can get training and one-on-one mentoring, and it's all available free. So check those out, and we have those links on our website. Thank you. Good morning. We are going to talk about benzodiazepines. For disclosure here, I am just not a fan <laughs> We have so many problems with these medications, right, Paula? Yeah, we do. And I I think it's the area of medicine that we work in. We see the problematic side of benzodiazepines, particularly. I think our psychiatry colleagues see them as a pretty valuable tool when they're used correctly. But from our side of the table, we pretty much just see problem after problem after problem, right? Oh, of course. We're going to just talk about a little bit of the mechanism of action and some of the statistics associated with kind of rates of overdose and misuse, withdrawal symptoms, and treatment of the withdrawal and long-term symptoms of benzodiazepine withdrawal and management. Starting kind of the mechanism of action benzodiazepines. This acts on GABA, and this is primarily an inhibitory neurotransmitter. Paula, tell us about the mechanism of action of benzodiazepines. Okay, well, benzodiazepines are um, psychoactive drugs that act on the GABA-A receptor, which is the main inhibitory receptor in the central nervous system. The result of agonizing GABA-A is sedation, hypnosis, or in other words, they induce sleep. We get an anxiolytic effect from this, an anticonvulsant effect, and then also you can get some muscle relaxant effects. So this receptor, when you act on it, everything kind of slows down, shuts down, and numbs out. That's kind of the way to think about it. So the effect is obviously those things that you're desiring maybe to help someone sleep, to reduce anxiety, to reduce the effects of seizures and to um, relax muscles. The problem with this, though, is you also shut down other cognitive and CNS effects, and so you get some inevitable adverse effects, including amnesia, especially anterograde amnesia. You might get dissociation, and you might have numbing to other emotional responses. A lot of times people will report that you get um, a decreased response to other life experiences, positive experiences, for example. And unfortunately, because of the effect on the receptor and the unique receptor action, you gain tolerance and the risk of withdrawal. So the, this receptor, I think you tell us about the receptor, the actual um, GABA receptor in the brain. For those that are not medically trained, anterograde amnesia is the ability to form new memories. And that can be really problematic for patients, especially our younger population, which can be the biggest abusers. And then we have five different alpha receptors, GABA alpha receptors. So they're alpha one, two, three, and five. 
that are affected and they are throughout the CNS. But anxiety is one of the most prevalent mental health disorders in the U.S. And the family practice where we both work, this is one of our most common symptoms that patients come in for. It's rated to be at least 19%. But I would say it's even more common because even if a patient comes in with another mental health disorder, anxiety is going to be, even if it's not the primary complaint, it's the secondary complaint. Wouldn't you say so, Paula? Yes, absolutely. Especially now, I think we're all seeing increased rates of anxiety, either generalized anxiety, panic disorder, or PTSD. With the increase of benzodiazepines and when they came on the market, this was felt to be heavily marketed by the makers of the benzodiazepine. So from the NASDA 2018 survey, it came out that 12.6%, so this equates to 30.6 million in 2018 had used benzodiazepine. Of that, 5.3 million or 2.2% misused, with, a, with that being 17.2% overall misuse rate. The highest, in the, when you break it down by age group, it's the 18 to 25 age group has the highest rate of misuse. And the largest growing rate of use is the over 50 to 65. And the most common reason for use is insomnia, even more than sometimes anxiety. Is that what you're seeing in your practice? Yeah, so this is really interesting. So what you're saying is that uh, about 17% of benzodiazepine users misuse their benzodiazepines. That's quite a lot. Nearly one in five, not quite. One in five, one one in six of your patients who are getting a benzodiazepine prescription are misusing it. Most of them would be, well, statistically, the age group 18 to 25 are at really high risk for this. But I really remember this, that the highest growing rate or the, the growing rate of bourgeoisie people on benzodiazepines are this group of people over 55. And I yes. think it's mostly women. I think women are presenting to their primary care providers saying, I can't sleep. I'm really anxious. And they're getting prescribed sedative hypnotics, anxiolytics, mostly in the benzodiazepine category often in the Z drug category too, but but we can talk about that in a minute. And uh, they may have some deleterious effects. I think it's interesting to see though that the NASDA study says only about 2% of people have of the US population has a benzodiazepine use disorder just by itself. However, if you look at benzodiazepine use as kind of a secondary drug of use amongst other substance users, we see a whole different story, right? Oh, my goodness. So I'm glad you brought that up. The estimates are is it's at least close to 25%. And I think that is underreported. And most addiction specialists would agree, and especially among our opiate using population. Right. We're seeing a really dramatic increase in overdose deaths involving opioids and benzodiazepines, especially alprazolam which is the shortest acting of benzodiazepines that we commonly see prescribed in the outpatient setting. And so this has raised a high alert for people who do receive opioid prescriptions in terms of what's their risk for respiratory suppression and for overdose and even suicide. And then for our illicit substance users who use prescription opioids non-medically or heroin and fentanyl products, 
What is their co-use of benzodiazepines and what is their risk? Yeah, absolutely. And one thing I want to just comment on, the female use is it's almost double that of males is what what you reported before. Oh, really? That's really interesting. According to um, NIDA or the drugabuse.gov website, which has, I, I love their data. It's um, a National Institute of Health um, website. They said that a cohort study um, in North Carolina that found that overdose death rates amongst patients receiving both opioids and benzos was 10 times higher than those only receiving opioids. And we know patients receiving chronic opioids are at an increased risk of all-cause mortality. And in a study of overdose deaths in people prescribed opioids for non-cancer pain in Canada, 60% of them tested positive for benzodiazepines. We, We know from lots of different studies that patients receiving a benzodiazepine prescription and opioid prescriptions have a risk of drug opioid death in a dose response fashion. So the more you prescribe both and the higher the doses of both, the more likely your patient is going to die. That is so true. Two studies that I found, and this is one from Guerless, and this is twenty from 2015, 50% of chronic benzodiazepine users met criteria for benzodiazepine dependence. So it's definitely underreported. And then Dodds et al. from 2017, this was a review article of 17 studies on benzodiazepine. And it was associated with an increased risk of suicide. I I really think that is really interesting. It alludes to the fact that maybe the disinhibition, behavioral disinhibition and increased aggression could be related to that that, that behavior. I totally agree. Yeah, they're problematic medications for many people. Um, I mean, these are kind of the end of the spectrum negative effects, uh, closer to the more early or immediate effects or mild effects, if you could call them mild, include some of those things we talked about initially, you know, anterograde amnesia, cognitive decline and dysfunction, falls in the elderly. Uh, What else? Sedation, respiratory depression. What are the side effects of benzodiazepines can you think of? I think you've hit the most severe besides just the complete kind of just flattening kind of numbing effect that we see. And then the quickly, the tolerance effect, particularly alprazolam, you can see tolerance and even withdrawal within seven days of use on alprazolam. It's rebound anxiety because of their short half-life and effect. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, these are some of the really, this is what we're going to talk about is uh, the risk of prolonged benzodiazepine use and what ends up happening either in an addictive fashion where you have you meet criteria for a benzodiazepine use disorder or just sheer tolerance because you've been on the medication for a long time. And like you said, you can very quickly develop some physical dependence, right? And, you know, benzodiazepine prescriptions have increased steadily over the years. I mean, we've you talked about this age group, 18 to 25, and then the over 55s. Emergency department visits have gone up, overdose deaths have gone up. And so, you know, we need to, we all face, I think, in medicine, first of all, what do we do with an intoxicated patient? What does an intoxicated patient look like? What do benzodiazepines do to a person acutely? And then what do they do to the person chronically? And how how do we treat their withdrawal? So I remember, Darlene, I remember the very, the first experience I remember clinically with the 
benzodiazepine intoxicated patient, it's a very different look and feel to say alcohol intoxication or opioid intoxication, similar in ways to alcohol intoxication, but there's a little nuanced difference to it, right? I mean, signs of benzodiazepine intoxication include slurred speech and incoordination. They can have a gait that's unsteady. Often it's more their amnesia or the way that they present their ability to cognate, right? Just inability yes. to, to be present, to be able to have that conversation with you. They might have nystagmus, which is similar to intoxication with alcohol, and they might have a slower breathing rate. So they might just overall seem like a slowed down individual, slowed down, glassy eyed, slower breathing. If you do nystagmus testing on them, they might have that, but they don't have the blood alcohol level that you would find in someone who's intoxicated with alcohol. They may not have the gross cerebellar ataxia, but they do stumble around. Um, and see slowed down. Anything else that you would notice on acute intoxication with benzodiazepines? I think you've covered it. Yeah. So in terms of patients who've been on benzodiazepines for some time and they either want to get off or we want to recommend them getting off, what I find interesting is how individualized it is to see that patients may have a very difficult time coming off a small amount of a benzodiazepine equivalent for a long time versus high dose for a short time. Does that make sense? Yes. I've seen patients who've been on alprazolam 0.5 milligrams BID, which is a pretty small dose. I mean, that's equivalent to 10 milligrams of Valium twice a day or, or clonazepam um, you know, 0.5 milligrams BID, which is a really small dose. And yet they have the worst time getting off of it. They have significant withdrawal. Yes. Or you have folks who maybe you're more risky, vulnerable patients who have substance use disorder who are taking really high doses of one of these benzos, like they're taking six milligrams of clonazepam a day or 10 milligrams of alprazolam a day. And they go on binges and they'll take that amount whenever they have access to it and then they'll stop and they have significant and terrible withdrawal when they stop. And uh, there are kind of short-term and long-term approaches to helping people withdraw from benzodiazepines. Um, what do we see typically when patients are withdrawing from benzos? I guess that's the question. And what are the risks associated with benzodiazepine withdrawal? So the withdrawal symptoms, there's so many, and I think that's common that we're not always recognizing it. So you have seizures, return of anxiety, and panic attacks. You can even have the physical aches and pains that can be anything from uncomfortable to severe. People can also have paresthesias, even the same kind of bugs crawling out of the skin. So that can be confused with other drugs, right? Sometimes we get that confused with intoxication syndromes, muscle spasms, hyperventilation, sweating, loss of appetite, trouble concentrating, nausea, vomiting, detachment from reality, depression. Some people are hallucinating in delusions. I have seen this. It can be very confusing, especially in the elderly family members bring in you know, a grandma and grandpa, or they bring in someone who's been admitted to a facility and a medication was just changed or stopped. 
and it's not recognized. Do you see that? Oh, yeah, that's a really good point. People lose access to their benzodiazepine that's been chronically prescribed, like they come in for a surgery and it's not continued or they get admitted to a long-term care facility. That's a really good point. And yeah, your list of withdrawal symptoms is right on. I mean, obviously, the most uh, frightening and risky withdrawal uh, symptom or sign is a seizure, which can occur really at any time in the spectrum of abstinence from the benzo, right? Or yes. even if people decrease their dose significantly, they can be vulnerable to seizing. Typically, seizures are generalized tonic-clonic seizures, and it's more likely to occur in a shorter time frame if they've been taking a shorter half-life benzodiazepines. So if someone has been taking alprazolam, the onset of their benzodiazepine withdrawal syndrome is likely to occur in a much shorter time frame. So maybe even within a few hours, definitely within 12 to 24 hours. If they've been chronically taking a long-acting benzodiazepine such as clonazepam or even something like chlordiazepoxide, which is not as commonly seen um, or abused, or maybe even diazepam, uh, patients may have a protracted onset of their acute withdrawal syndrome, and it may not even start for five to seven or even up to 10 to 14 days. I had a patient once who was admitted for withdrawal management from opioids. He did not divulge that he had been taking clonazepam pretty high dose for a long time. It didn't show up on his prescription monitoring program because he was from out of state. And we treated him for his opioid withdrawal. And on day seven, he began to describe jumpiness, jitteriness, terrible anxiety. He had sweats. He had tinnitus. And he began to progressively and rapidly become delirious. And for all intents and purposes, it looked a lot like delirium tremens. His heart rate went up. His blood pressure went up. It was really quite concerning. And his um, girlfriend, we called her and said, what do you think could be going on? She said, well, he's been taking clonazepam four milligrams a day forever. <laughs> so we're like, well, that would have been nice to know. But his syndrome only started on day six of hospitalization. The most common things that I hear people tell me just clinically when I when they're acutely withdrawing from benzodiazepines, just like you said, paresthesias, a lot of heightened sense of light sensitivity and sound sensitivity and reaction to the environment. So headaches, inability to sleep, anxiety, and they may have decreased appetite, those kinds of things. That is classic, Paula. And that is such a good story. I think that is seen so often and it gets blamed as if somebody was just admitted to a medical ward and not a detox unit. So many things, just think we would have been looking for infection. They would have been looking for at so many other things, right? Rather than right. that this was probably a medication withdrawal. It just does not look, it doesn't always look like your typical withdrawal symptoms. Exactly. And the other thing is that it can go on and on and on. So it can start at any time. It can start early. It can have started before you see a patient. So a patient may have cut down on their dose or they may have run out of their prescription and be in the middle of withdrawal by the time you see them. Or like we've discussed, it may only show up when you're well into treating them for something else. So you have to always have it on your differential. It can start anywhere from six hours. So if they're abusing alprazolam or even just using alprazolam to up to 14 days. 
you can see right. that starting and then protracted symptoms, we see months, even a year or years, you can see these protracted symptoms. And, and exactly. that sometimes is the, the danger and the discouraging part of benzodiazepines. Exactly. And one thing too, that we should comment on is point of care urine drug screens often miss benzodiazepine use. Different benzodiazepines are metabolized differently. Obviously, some of them have active metabolites and some of them don't. Particularly clonazepam and lorazepam are missed on point of care urine drug screens. So this can be very harmful in two ways. One, you can be a provider prescribing a patient clonazepam or lorazepam and checking a routine drug screen to make sure your patient is compliant with therapy. They test negative and you think, well, they're not taking it and you take action. In this situation, you always want to send the urine for confirmation with a gas chromatography mass spectrometry um, urinalysis, or you can be admitting someone to the hospital, seeing them in the emergency room, some other clinical situation where you test their urine, there's no sign of benzodiazepine, so you put that out of your mind, and then they have a seizure on day three or day four of hospitalization, and you just missed, like we did with our patient, that they were taking high doses of clonazepam for years because it did not show up on typical urine drug screening. That's such an important point. So let's talk, Darlene, about how do you treat acute benzodiazepine? diazepine withdrawal. What is the, the approach? We're going to talk about acute benzodiazepine withdrawal management, and then we're going to talk about protracted benzodiazepine withdrawal syndrome, or I guess we could call it post-acute withdrawal syndrome. A lot of times we use that to discuss alcohol withdrawal that goes on and on, and we'll talk about how to approach that. So what is the main approach for treating acute benzodiazepine withdrawal? Very similar to alcohol, usually. So typically, you're kind of doing almost like a CWAS score. You're monitoring vitals. Just like what you saw, you see those elevated pulse and blood pressure. Often, you're using either a long-acting benzodiazepine is some t- or phenobarbital. Isn't that what you used in your institution? Yeah, exactly. So I nearly always recommend inpatient management of benzodiazepine withdrawal syndrome. And this is very mild. So you can use these um, scales. There is actually a benzodiazepine version of the CWA, but it's very similar to CWA, so you can use that. You can also just assess the risk or patient patient's severity of their symptoms, but it's very hard to predict patient's severity of their symptoms, kind of like we talked about before. I've seen people who've had very low dose use, who I actually trust their history, have really terrible withdrawal from benzodiazepines. And I've had the opposite true, where I've seen some people who've had high use actually do quite well. So it's very unpredictable. So typically we admit people and monitor them for benzodiazepine withdrawal syndrome, especially if it appears to be severe. Occasionally you can manage it in the outpatient setting if you go really slowly, but you're dead right. You, What we do is a two-pronged approach. You either use a long-acting benzodiazepine such as chlordiazepoxide, and you take the equivalency of uh, what benzodiazepine they've been using. So say they've been using alprazolam, the equivalency of alprazolam to chlordiazepoxide is 0.5 alprazolam to 25 milligrams of Librium, or excuse me, 0.5 milligrams alprazolam to 25 milligrams of chlordiazepoxide. And typical rule of thumb is you will start treating and covering their tolerance at 50% 
of what they were using. You might need to go up on that or down depending on how they react. But if someone comes in and they've been using, uh, you know, six milligrams of alprazolam a day, you know, so I'm going to take that and times and take chlorodiazepoxide times 25 times 12 and start them that would be a 300 milligram equivalent. So I'd start them at about 150 milligram total dose a day. And I'd think, well, that's actually pretty high tolerance. Maybe I'll just start by covering them with 50 milligrams QID and uh, some PRNs and just see how they do follow them very, very closely. Because like we said, some people might have more severe symptoms and some might not. Now, I typically have found if you are treating acute benzodiazepine withdrawal in the inpatient setting for patients who've been overusing benzos, it can be very tricky to use a benzo to treat a benzo withdrawal. And that's because there is craving and longing for benzos, right? And patients want more, more, more. So you can do this approach. It's actually, this is what you're going to find in UpToDate. This is what you're going to find it's very appropriate method of doing this. You can use pretty much anything that's longer acting than the medication they've been taking. And the reason why we use longer acting agents is you get less peaks and troughs, you get better coverage of these symptoms that may occur. And you also provide adjunctive therapies to help them with things like their insomnia, their agitation, and their increased anxiety. So we'll often use medications like trazodone, Vistaril, Seroquel is actually very helpful. And then if they're having GI upset, obviously we use ondansetron, loperamide, etc. I find diazepam very helpful actually because it's very long acting. It has different metabolites. So we can also make an equivalency um, calculation and treat with diazepam if people do not respond well to chlordiazepoxide or if they are not good candidates for chlordiazepoxide. There are a few people who just aren't good candidates, Darlene, right? These are people typically over the age of 65, people who have chronic lung disease, people who have significant liver impairment, or if you have them on other significantly respiratory depressing medications, I would generally avoid chlordiazepoxide. It just has too long of a half-life and it can accumulate in patients' systems and you can start loading them up and next thing you have a situation of significant respiratory um, suppression and it's very hard to reverse. So if you have a patient who meets one of those criteria, I would consider using diazepam or lorazepam which um, doesn't have any active metabolites, right? So even though it's short acting, um, you can treat people with lorazepam. The equivalency is one milligram, one to two milligrams of lorazepam to 0.5 of alprazolam. And it doesn't give people a smooth detox experience or withdrawal management experience, but it's effective. You just have to dose it higher and more frequently. But going back to what I was saying is you often will see people who come in, they've been using or abusing clonazepam or Xanax or Prazolam, and you start treating them with a benzo and it is a struggle, right? It is a struggle. It It is so difficult. Right. And this is where the old-fashioned, good old-fashioned medication, phenobarbital, can be very, very helpful. So my amazing mentor um, in addiction medicine, she's an addiction psychiatrist, she uses phenobarbital and she thinks that, you know, 
providers are scared of this medication. And, and I would have to agree, I've used it over many, many years, treating lots and lots of patients, especially anyone who's been using or abusing benzodiazepines. And obviously, you have to take caution and realize that you're only using this medication for acute management. You would never put someone on this as a substitute and leave them on it. It has too many side effects and it's too dangerous. But in an acute inpatient setting, you would use it just like you would uh, switching to a long-acting benzodiazepine. There's an equivalency for phenobarbital, 32.2 milligrams of phenobarbital is equivalent to chlordiazepoxide, 25 milligrams. So whenever you would use uh, Librium or chlordiazepoxide, you just switch it over and use the phenobarbital, right? So you could yes. do a symptom-based treatment protocol Typically, we don't typically, excuse me, it's not 32.2, 32.4 milligrams. We typically would just do a scheduled protocol, or you could even do a loading dose protocol. If you're worried someone's coming in and they've used a ton of benzos recently and you're worried they're going to seize any minute, you can actually load them up with phenobarbital until they get somewhat or mildly sedated. And then you can back it off. And because of its very, very long half-life, they do very well. So there are methods of, of approaching acute benzodiazepine withdrawal, either with a long-acting benzo like chlordiazepoxide and diazepam, if they have hepatic impairment, other vulnerabilities like COPD or sleep apnea, or they're over the age of 65, I would say try something short acting like lorazepam. If they have a lot of clinging or you want a cleaner, shorter withdrawal management period, like you only know you have someone admitted to the hospital for four days instead of seven to 10, which is what you really need for a benzodiazepine admission, you can use phenobarbital, front load them with higher doses. So dose them with 64.8 milligrams several times a day, or even 97.2 milligrams. Obviously, you'd only do this in the inpatient setting with very close monitoring, including vital signs every two hours, CUR scales every two hours, etc. And then back it off as soon as you begin to see some CNS depression. Does that make sense? Or does that seem like a garbled mess? <laughs> no, that makes sense. And I think it's just key that that is inpatient. What do you do outpatient? When you have a patient who comes in, and I get this all the time, they're either abusing opiates as well, or they need to be, they're requesting to be tapered off their benzodiazepine, or you're seeing a problem with their benzodiazepine and need to take them off it. And they may be either cannot be admitted inpatient or refusing to be. What do you do in those settings? It really is. I mean, ideally, the inpatient setting is, is key, right? Because you want to keep people safe. You really, because of the unpredictability and the unreliability of people's response to benzodiazepine withdrawal and the innate struggle and rebound anxiety, terrible insomnia, etc., that occurs with stopping someone's benzos, I just feel like they need more support. But you're right. Some people cannot be admitted to the hospital for many, many reasons. They don't have the time, they don't have the coverage, the hospital won't admit them, etc. So what do you do? Well, I mean, you, you take what they're taking and you can approach it either two ways. One, you just start a slow taper of what they are currently taking, right? And I think you have to divide patients into two groups. One, decide, does this patient have a substance use disorder? If they have a substance use disorder, keeping them on their benzodiazepine and slowly tapering is not an option. 
because there's no such thing as controlled use in patients with substance use disorder. Now, there might be people listening to this who really disagree with me on that. And they say, oh, well, you're not giving people enough credit. People deserve a chance. You're making generalizations that people who have addiction to one substance cannot control substances in another. But generally, I think it's just too risky to keep people on something that may cause death by overdose. So you divide folks. If you have a patient who's on a benzodiazepine and physically dependent and otherwise not needing to be on this medication anymore, or you decide, you know what, this is no longer indicated for you, the risks outweigh the benefits, those patients, you could just start a slow taper. You can reduce their dose more so initially by either 20 to 50%, and then you gradually decrease by 10% a week or 10% every two weeks. If they are abusing their medication or have a substance use disorder, I switch them to another agent. You could switch them to a long-acting benzodiazepine if you think they can control that so that you can go from alprazolam to clonazepam or from lorazepam to diazepam. Or you can switch them if you don't think they're going to have severe withdrawal, which I think is more ideal, to uh, uh, anticonvulsant medication like gabapentin, carbamazepine, or Depakote. And so I think it just, you have to make that decision, Darlene, of is this patient at risk right now? Do we need to get them off very quickly? If they do need to come off, they need to go inpatient. If you need to take them off very slowly and they're responsible and capable of managing their benzos, you have two choices. Keep them on what they're on and slowly taper them down, right? There's some good resources of how to do that. You can look it up on like Oregon Pain Guidance. That website is excellent for for recommending taper protocols, or you switch them to a longer acting version and slowly taper them on a more longer acting version. I don't know, Darlene, though, I haven't found that people do very well with that. And then the I, I have is- not, I agree with you. I have not found great success. I have many patients with failed tapers on that route. Right, right. They, they just don't do that well, right? So you can keep them on what they're on give them a lot of support and give them some control over their taper and then go from there and realize that tapering off of benzodiazepines takes a very long time for a lot of people, a lot of people. And brief approach to tapering in general, if if you guys struggle with tapers, which I think all of us do, there's an excellent protocol that is um, published by this amazing addiction physician. Her name is Anna Lemke, and she uh, has a protocol called the Bravo Protocol. I don't know if you've heard about this, Darlene. I'm sure you have, but B stands for broaching the the subject. So you speak to your patient and you say, you know what? We need to talk about this. We need to get you off your benzos. We need to reduce the dose. I'm worried about your cognitive impairment. I'm worried about risk for dementia. I'm worried about increasing um, the rate of falls for you, et cetera. And then you discuss a R for in Bravo is a risk benefit calculator. You know, let's talk about the risks versus the benefits of this medication. Now, my experience, and I know yours too, Darlene, whenever you're talking to people who have a lot of attachment to their benzodiazepines, they will see the benefits greater than the risks, right? Yeah. Yeah. They're <laughs> yeah. never, they're, they, they don't see any, any risks. Any risk. Yeah. I've heard it multiple times where even when, especially when they're there for either alcohol abuse or opiate abuse, they just tell you, I've never abused my alprazolam. So that's not a problem. And I'm not here to talk about that. And I don't want to talk about it with you. Even though you're telling them this is no longer an option for you, that we we are going to talk about this because it's it's going to stop. 
Right. I mean, what's the most common thing you hear about in regards to benzos? It's what I hear is it's the only thing that works. It's the only thing that works and you're going to take it away from me. So it's not uncommon to get, hear some anger, but you know, it's our role as a provider to provide informed consent for any treatment we provide and prescribe. And that includes discussing the risks of medications. And I think we can be open-minded to the benefits and say, you know, I hear that this medication is very helpful for you, that it helps with your anxiety, that it helps with your sleep, that you haven't done well on SSRIs. However, I, as the prescriber, am advising you that these are the risks right? Yes. And you can give them a summary. A for Bravo is addiction. So you have to be aware that you can let your patients know that many patients may have moved from just taking this medication to some addiction qualities, including craving their medication, not being able to control it and having consequences to using it. A really common consequence to benzodiazepine use, even with patients who definitely don't see them as being addicted, is their family will say, you're not the same when you're taking your medication. You're not the same. You're not there. You know, you're not the same mom. You're just kind of checked out. That is a negative consequence. And you can sometimes bring that up with patients and say, tell me what your family think of this medication. Or you can key into the anterograde amnesia part and say, tell me about when you just lost a couple of hours when you took that Xanax or you took an extra Xanax. This happens all the time with Z drugs, right, Darlene? Absolutely. This is one of the big problems with Zolpidem is anterograde amnesia and you have nighttime activity. Okay, quickly going through the rest of this acronym, V is velocity and validation. So how quick you go through the taper really matters. Giving people a chance to to set the pace. You know, you want you might be able to reduce the dose initially pretty rapidly, but then you want to go down very slowly, 5 to 10% every one to two weeks. And then validation and letting people know, I'm here to support you. I'm going to do everything I can to, to help you be more comfortable. And not only with medications, you can refer people to evidence-based um, complementary medicine uh, techniques that may be helpful, including increased exercise, meditation, and mindfulness. Acupuncture has some efficacy. And then add adjuvant medications such as SSRIs, hydroxazine, anti-epileptics, etc., clonidine. And then O is um, other strategies, which we just kind of talked about. Approaching this and going very, very slowly can be very helpful because like we talked about, uh, many people really, really struggle with outpatient management of withdrawal. And so you want to take it really slowly, give them lots of support. And I found certain medications to be more helpful than others. I find gabapentin to be very helpful as either a substitute or as an adjuvant. Now, there's a disclaimer with gabapentin because in and of itself, it can be addictive and misused and it can be hard to get people off of it. However, the risk seems to be far lower for most people unless they're opioid use disorder patients than benzos. In some patients, I found Seroquel to be very, very helpful. It seems to help with anxiety and sleep. And of course, you have to be aware of the metabolic side effects. I often find that if I add a little bit of cotiapine at night for patients and if they're really struggling during the day, a very small dose, PRN, I can get them through this period of taper. What about you? What are your tips? No, I would agree with you. It's challenging. What is your usual starting doses on gabapentin? You completely stop the benzodiazepine and start the gabapentin or are you doing a cross taper? Well, I work now with a population that's pretty much 100% um, substance use disordered. And so I universally stop benzodiazepines and I will start them on gabapentin anywhere from 400 milligrams TID 
to 600 milligrams TID. There was a study showing efficacy for gabapentin 600 milligrams TID for alcohol use disorder and protracted alcohol use disorder syndrome. And there's some good people studying this. Uh, there was an excellent presentation at the CSAM conference in 2020 about benzodiazepine withdrawal syndromes and using anticonvulsants. And I think the doses are fluid, but typically higher. Doses are quite well tolerated, and then you slowly decrease the doses of gabapentin. So my typical initiating dose, if I'm just stopping the benzodiazepine, would be 600 milligrams TID. If I'm adding it, so if I have a patient who's not at risk for a substance use disorder, but we just want to get them off of their benzodiazepine, I'll add gabapentin 300 milligrams TID and then see how they do. I've also used other medications in the same category like uh, divalproic or valproic acid. If it's a gentleman who also has anger issues, who's also got mood dysregulation, et cetera, and sleep problems. But, you know, you can use your psychiatric skills to kind of pull one of these medications in the same class to help you. But typically the ones that have been most studied and seem to have the best efficacy are carbamazepine, which of course have has its own issues because it induces its own metabolism, has a lot of drug-drug interactions, but can be very helpful and is very, very cheap. And then also uh, valproic acid. Oxcarbazepine may be helpful too, but to worry about monitoring people's sodium. And some people just feel kind of weird on oxcarbazepine. So I think sometimes the issues we're running into is maybe just underdosing at first. And so that's maybe the most important thing is just looking at some of the data that's showing we maybe need to make sure we have them on the appropriate doses and understanding the potency of the benzodiazepines. And so that's why when you're just stopping them, you've got to have them on the right equivalent dose. Right. So, I mean, I would just say expect resistance, use the Bravo approach, recognize that you have more tools in your toolbox than just other benzodiazepines. You can use add adjuvant medications. You can use gabapentin can be very helpful. Phenobarbital can be very helpful. There's um, a professor who did a lot of very interesting and landmark work in the field of benzodiazepines from the UK. Her name is Heather Ashton. She's from Newcastle University, and she did some work in the 1990s surrounding benzodiazepines. She's kind of the grandmother of benzodiazepine withdrawal syndrome. If you treat a lot of patients with benzodiazepine use and benzodiazepine withdrawal, I really encourage you to read her work. You can go to benzo.org.uk and read her manual. And it's very, very interesting. And she's really the person who introduced us to this notion that people who've been taking benzodiazepines for years or a long time have neuromodulation of their receptors that take a very long time to repair and recover, like a year or more. And so people can expect to feel poorly, anxious, depressed, have trouble sleeping, have sensory symptoms, have poor memory for probably a year. And so when you have your patients who come to you and say, well, I went off of this and I feel so bad, I need to go back on it. It's the only thing that works. It might not be that they really need the benzo. It might just be that they're having withdrawal from the benzo. So just going through the process, seeing what you can do to support them and get them off it. And then of course, management of acute withdrawals is a life-saving measure. You want to address it very aggressively. It's not uncommon to Uh, Well, I I guess it is uncommon, but you can see significant delirium 
with severe benzodiazepine withdrawal and of course seizures, which you treat aggressively as you would with any generalized seizure. So IM benzodiazepines, IV benzodiazepines, rectal benzodiazepines, close monitoring, and sometimes patients require admission to ICU to receive uh, uh, dexmedetomidine, right? Yes. But uh, benzodiazepines, they're tricky drugs. They should only be used short-term use. And uh, we could go on and on, but I'll be quiet now and we can talk about um, things in another podcast. And anything else you want to say, please say it. No, you've done wonderfully. But I think the key message is benzodiazepine withdrawal is probably the one of the most missed probably withdrawal symptoms that we see. And protracted withdrawal symptoms go on and on for over for for a year or even more and i and, and i think that's really important and there was one study that showed that sometimes 60% of patients are back on a benzodiazepine within a year and if we can do a good job and continuing to educate these patients so we can we can do all this work to get them weaned off but we need to continue to follow them and educate them that some of these symptoms might continue, but support them so that they just don't go back on the benzodiazepine there. So I think that's great. Thank you so much. I agree. I agree. And just one last tip. Do not give substance use disorder patients benzos. Do not give patients with alcohol use disorder a benzo other than in the acute withdrawal management period. Please, you might derail their sobriety. Do not give opioid use disorder patients benzos. They want them. They love them and you might kill them. Do not do it. It is more harmful than good, even though they will beg you. They will beg you, and they will be mad at you if you don't. Do not do it. Hold your ground. Stand your ground. I had one teacher in residency who said, do not prescribe benzodiazepines to substance use patients, and this is why Xanax begins with an X and ends with an X. Do not do it at the beginning. Do not do it at the end. Be very, very cautious with your benzodiazepine prescribing. And that is it. That's all I have to say. That is our public service message for today. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Have a great day, everybody. Thank you. Until next time. Hey, check us out at theaddictionfiles.com or email us at theaddictionfiles at gmail.com. Thank you so much to Ricky Valides for use of his song, Awake. Check him out at rickyvalides.com. purposes only. Hosts and guests are not responsible for any harm caused by information obtained from the source. As each person is unique, you are advised to seek the advice of your own healthcare professional to treat any medical conditions you may be having. Opinions expressed on the show are those of the addiction files and not of our respective employers.